From Astoria to the Rockaways, it's time for the Queen's New Yorker. And here is the man giving you all the info, your uber snazzy and jazzy host, Mr. Jason DeCanio! Thank you, Jason Kelly. Oh, thank you. What a great group. Look at that crowd. Thank you all. Thank you. <laughs> oh. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> a nice cordial welcome. And thank you for joining us here on another edition of the Queen's New Yorker on Anchor, Spotify, and all the other eight platforms that we're on. And this is Tuesday, October 27th, 2020. It is another hot day here in Central Florida. Oh, my God. Temperature is up to at least 87 degrees and we're going to hit 90 in a couple of days. On Thursday, we could hit the 90-degree mark before we start even getting a cool down, folks. I, I don't know. I, this is just, you know, and, and being a New Yorker myself, born and raised, and you can't take that away from me and those who question it all the time, but being a New Yorker myself, I say to myself, I'm getting sick and tired of this heat, and yet, when are we going to drop to 20 degrees down, you know, cooler, go into the 60s and the 40s? I, I'm much rather have that. They're already having that in the Northeast already. I was listening to the 1010 Winds News uh, app on radio.com on the app because I always get the latest of what's going on, uh, you know, in New York. It's the only... Uh, radio station you can get that pretty much gives you all news all the time and it's been doing it for over 50 years so in this case uh to listen to the fact that they got 57 degrees but they're gonna make it up to 70 degrees like by tomorrow for a high for a high 70 degrees really and we're already been in the, in the 80s and 90s the last the entire month of october i remember i did a show my birthday show and i'm like what the heck this is still crazy so hopefully after halloween when we get into november the temperatures will start finally to cool down i heard we're going to get a nice breezy weekend so let's see if that holds true but anyways as we progress along here this is episode 138 today we're still in our series of bridges and tunnels we're wrapping up the final bridge on the East River, and that bridge has a lot of history, even though it's only been 50 years since it was built. But it's celebrating its silver anniversary this year or next year, and we're looking at today the history of the Throg's Neck Bridge. Uh, yes! The Throg's Neck Bridge. Yes. All right. Oh, this is going to be a fun one. This will be a fun one. 
All right. So let's go ahead and delve right into it. Of course, all of our information comes from the Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. You can follow us along in the history section. That's where we're going to start off with the planning of this great bridge. Let's do it right now. So plans for a bridge between Throgsnick and Queens date to a 1932 study by engineer J. Franklin Perrine. However, he discarded the proposed Throgsnick to Queens span because it would have required the construction of new highways at either end. The Throgsnick Bridge's construction was announced in January of 1955 by the Port Authority and the TBTA as part of the Port Authority's Joint Study of Atrial Facilities, which was a $600 million plan to improve highway access in the New York City area. That's the equivalent to 5.13 billion by 2019 standards. So the plan also included the construction of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, the addition of a second deck to the George Washington, and the completion of connecting highways in and around the city. The Throgsnake Bridge was to cost $93 million, and the span was needed because of increasing congestion on the Bronx Whitestone Bridge two miles west, which was nearing its traffic capacity by the late 1950s. Traffic loads on the Triborough and Bronx Whitestone Bridges had more than doubled on both bridges after World War II. The city and Port Authority came to a provisional agreement for the highway atrial plan in late March of 1955, and the plan was officially approved by the New York State Legislature two weeks later. Initially, the bridge approach on the Queens side was controversial because of the number of people who would be displaced, and there were proposals to scrap the bridge entirely. In September of 1956, Queensboro leaders agreed on the location for the Queen's approach of the Throgsnick Bridge, and from the Queen's anchorage, the approach would descend to a point of east of the Clearview Golf Course, approximately between 206th and 207th Streets, and continue south as the Clearview Expressway. This routing would displace 421 homes compared to the 860 in the original plan. And shortly after the atrial plan was approved, drivers on the Triborough and Bronx Whitestone Bridges were surveyed in order to assess demand for the Throgsnick. However, by February of 1956, the funding for the Throgsnick Bridge had not yet been acquired. Now, in January of 1957, the Port Authority provided $13 million in funding for the New York City atrial plan, and the New York State government gave another $469 million. With funding secured, the Throgsnake Bridge was ready for the start of construction. Then at the end of March of 57, the New York State Legislature suddenly changed the approach route for the Throgsnake and Narrows Bridges without the city's knowledge. The city then decided to, to defer any decision on either bridge for a year because both bridges' approaches would require potentially controversial home relocations. One plan had the Throgsnake Bridge approach in Queens connect directly to a road paralleling the Cross Island Parkway rather than to the proposed Clearview Expressway. TBTA officials warned that the Throgsnake Bridge could not be approved for construction until an approach was, route was finalized, and the revised approach routes for both the Narrows and the Throgsnake Bridges were approved that June, which allowed construction on both crossings to begin. 
And as a result of the revisions to the Clearview Expressway approach, the cost estimate for the Throgs Neck Bridge increased to $126 million. The city approved the construction of the bridge that July. A final obstacle was removed in August when the United States Senate passed a bill stating that the construction of the proposed bridge over the SUNY Maritime College at Fort Schuler was not a breach of a prior land conveyance and authorized the United States Army to give the New York State government some land for the bridge's construction. The SUNY Maritime College would receive seven acres of land in exchange for an easement to allow the bridge to be constructed over the college. TBTA Chairman Moses commissioned Othmar Aman once again for the construction of the Throgs Neck Bridge. This was Aman's first long-span bridge project since 1931, which saw the dedication of the George Washington Bridge over the Hudson River. A groundbreaking ceremony for the Throgs Neck Bridge occurred at the SUNY Maritime College on October 22, 1957, and at the time, the approach roads alone were expected to cost $51 million, nearly half of the total bridge cost. It was expected that the bridge would be complete by 1961. A month later, six construction contracts worth $42.5 million were awarded, representing nearly half of the span's cost. The contract for the suspension towers, Metal, was awarded to Bethlehem Steel at a cost of $10.2 million and the contract for the tower's concrete went to Merritt, Chapman, and Scott for $7.5 million. The suspension cables would then be built by U.S. Steel for $6.3 million. Now, work on the Queen's anchorage between began in March of 1958. The 162-by-72-foot steel cassions for the Throgs Neck Bridge were shipped up the East River that summer. The 73-short-ton steel assembly for the first of the two suspension towers were installed in April of 1959. And afterward, the suspension towers were installed in pieces. Each piece measured 23.5 feet tall by 11 by 9 feet around. Work on the towers proceeded quickly, and by September of 1959, the Bronx suspension tower was fully completed and the Queens Tower was 60% completed. However, a steel worker's strike in October of 59 threatened to delay further completion. By January of 1960, both towers of the Throgs Neck Bridge had been completed, and the first 1,800 feet wire between the two suspension towers had been installed. This cable marked the location of the future bridge deck. But in the interim, it would be one of six wires that would support temporary catwalks between the suspension towers. The spinning of the main cables between the tops of each suspension tower began in March. The wires for the cables were spun from reels near the base of the bridge and then pulled across to the opposite side by two wheels, one at each bridge tower. The cables were fully spun by June of 1960, and the vertical suspender cables connecting the main cables with the deck were installed. The steel girder sections that comprised the bridge's deck were prefabricated at another location and then shipped to the site of the Throgs Neck Bridge. Each section measured 82 by 93 feet and weighed 200 short tons. The sections were installed on the bridge at a rate of two per day. 
Installation of the deck started at each suspension tower and continued outward in either direction, extending toward the center and the approach viaducts on each side. Afterward, concrete was poured atop the steel sections. And the steel work for the roadway was completed in, in summer of 1960, and work on constructing the Throg's Neck Bridges approaches progressed simultaneously. The Queen's Approach viaduct had been completed up to the suspension span in September of 60, and the final work on the bridge consisted of sheathing the main cables as well as paving the roadway with asphalt. By December of 1960, toll boots for the bridge were being installed, and a definite opening date had been set for the next month. The Throg's Neck Bridge opened with a short ceremony on January 11, 1961. Its total construction cost had been $92 million. The bridge opened along with a segment of the Clearview Expressway southward to 73rd Avenue in Fresh Meadows, as well as the Cross Bronx and Throg's Neck Expressways in the Bronx. The bridge's opening was later attended by Robert Moses as well as by Mayor Robert F. Wagner Jr., Lieutenant Governor Malcolm Wilson, City Council President Abe Stark, and Queensboro President John T. Clancy. The opening of the Throgsnake Bridge had been accelerated in advance of the start of the 1964 New York World's Fair at nearby Flushing Meadows Corona Park. Immediately after the bridge's opening ceremony, the delegation attended the opening of the World's Fair attraction at Flushing Meadows Corona Park. The bridge's opening drew protests from homeowners in Queens who had been forced to relocate due to the construction of the Clearview Expressway. Several dozen women walked across the bridge, holding signs and attempting to block the first vehicles driving on the bridge. It was expected that the Throg's Neck Bridge's opening would initially cause 15 million vehicles annually to be diverted to the span from other bridges. And by 1981, the bridge would carry 37.5 million vehicles annually. Within the first 12 hours of the bridge's opening, 20,000 vehicles had used the bridge. Throgsneck Bridge had carried 16.4 million vehicles by the end of the year, and the Bronx-Whitestone Bridge recorded a corresponding 40% decline in traffic in 1961. The Throgsneck Bridge was originally designated as part of I-78, which extended south to Hillside Avenue and the southern terminus of the Clearview Expressway. I-78 was to continue south and west across Queens, Brooklyn, <coughs> and Manhattan to the Holland Tunnel. Ultimately, nearly all sections of I-78 between the Holland Tunnel and the Hillside Avenue were canceled by Governor Nelson Rockefeller in 1971, and this resulted in the renumbering of all I-78 north of Hillside Avenue, including the Throg's Neck Bridge, to I-295 on January 1st, 1970. We will stop there, and when we come back on Thursday's edition, which will be the pre-Halloween edition of our show, we'll look at the later years and, of course, the tolls, some incidents, and I have a quickie quiz question for you. And... Uh, here is the question, and I'm going to pose the question in all the Facebook groups, and I want to see who answers the question correctly. And for those who do answer the question correctly, your name will get announced on the program. Okay? So you have to tune in. You have to listen to the show 
in order to get this question for today's show to answer for Thursday's edition, which will be episode 139. So the question, really simple. Who was the person that the Throgs Neck Bridge was named after? Okay? So which, who was it that was named after the Throgs Neck Bridge? Okay, that's the that's the answer to the question, and I will post that in all of the Facebook groups that have been watching the pro or you know listening to the podcast. Thank you for your continued support, and if you'd like to make a financial contribution to the Queens New Yorker on Anchor, you can go to our support page. Well, of course, we're putting that in the link in the description, and when we come back. On Thursday's edition, episode 139, part two of the conclusion of the Throg's Neck Bridge. Yes, yes, yes. Then after uh, that, we was looking at some of the uh, rest of the bridges. Uh, not much history goes in the Harlem River bridges. Of course, we'll mention them, but there was not much history to it. So we'll shoot right to Saturday's episode. The Halloween episode is going to take us to the George Washington Bridge. That's going to be fun. So we'll look forward to that and see where it takes us. I am really happy to say that right now uh, on Anchor, I'm looking at the uh, dashboard pages. Um, Saturday's episode of uh, part two of the Bronx Whitestone Bridge, episode 137, got 20 plays. The the part one got 28. And the Triborough Bridges uh, series started with 16, went to 28, 27, and then finished up a four-part series with 21 plays. Very nice. Um, the Legacy episodes, that's going to resurrect itself on Sunday, November 1st. We'll pick up where we left off with episode number four with John Gotti. And those episodes with Robert Moses, my grandmother Josephine France, and Fiorello H. LaGuardia got a 24-35-38 play rating. So you guys are impressed with that. And the Queensboro Bridge, boy, it got a big whopping 62 plays on the day after my birthday, I uploaded a whole bunch of stuff on the day after my birthday, and you guys were impressed with that one. 62 plays in the books. I want to give a shout-out to all of the group pages that I uh, am with. That's from South Ozone Park, uh, Richmond Hill, and, of course, the Queens pages as well. Thank you very much for your continued support. And like I said, you want to make that financial contribution, you may do so at the support page with the link below. It'll give you three options to, to make a financial commitment for future episodes here on Anchor and, of course, Spotify. I'm Jason Ecanio, stating once again, thank you very much for your continued support of the show. We hope you have a great rest of the day. 
I will see you on Thursday on the Queens, New Yorker, for the conclusion of the Throg's Neck Bridge. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You have been watching the Queens, New Yorker. This is Jason Kelly on a Jason DeCanio Internet presentation. Thank you for your support.